Welcome to this message from the teaching ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida, under the leadership of Senior Pastor Mike Osborne. And everyone else, I'd love to ask you to pull out a Bible and turn with me to John chapter 3. While you're turning to John 3, it's John 3 verses 1 through 8. John is the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. And if you didn't bring a Bible, not to worry. We have some hardback Bibles. They're up under the chairs here. Um, Please Pull out a Bible and keep it open because we're going to look carefully at this chapter, John 3, 1 through 8. While you're turning to John 3, let me just urge you to be a people of prayer in these days. And inside your worship guide, you will find an insert there that will guide you through some prayer points that we're asking the church family to agree on week by week. It's a lavender insert. On that lavender, you can put it up on a refrigerator, you can put it in your Bible, you can put it somewhere in a conspicuous place. And uh, as a life group, as a family, as an individual, please be praying for us as a church. We're going through a time of of study and consideration and prayer. And uh, tonight at 6 o'clock, we're going to have our other every other week prayer meeting. Um, I would urge you to come to that. It's going to be in room 6 in the other building at 6 o'clock. So please join us for prayer and Let's be a praying church during these, these times. John chapter 3, listen carefully as I read verses 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he's old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will now send your Spirit to us as we think and talk together about this passage of Scripture. We pray that you will bring it to life in our lives. Point us to Jesus and send us out looking to you as we try to apply this passage of Scripture to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1976, a book was published that pretty much shocked the nation because of the author who wrote it. And it brought a phrase out of the passage of Scripture that we just looked at and into American popular culture. The title of that book was Born Again. It was written by Chuck Colson. It was his first-person account telling of his conversion to Christianity. Chuck Colson 
was, of course, if you remember, he uh, passed away recently, but he was during President Nixon's time, Nixon's hatchet man during those dark and tumultuous days of Watergate. Born again. That's a phrase that now is probably the most derided, most misunderstood, and most misused religious term in our country ever since it, that book was published. But we're going to talk about it today because it is one of the most important activities of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. This is a series that we're doing on the Spirit as a, uh, in His person and in His, in His work. And so today we want to talk about what it means to be born again. Another word for born again is regeneration. Another word for that is the new birth or the rebirth. However you choose to talk about it, it is the most critical thing it, you, you need to know about Christianity because that's what brings someone into the family of God, being born again. I want to talk about three things as we open this subject up this morning. First, the necessity of the new birth. Secondly, the nature of the new birth. And finally, the marks of the new birth. So first of all, let's dive in. I've got a lot to say, so I'm going to talk as fast as I can. Please follow along with me and take notes because this is important stuff. The first thing I want to talk about is the necessity of the new birth. Why is it important to be born again? Why did Jesus sound so earnest in his words to Nicodemus here in John chapter 3? Well, let's get the lay of the land first of all. It's early in Jesus' ministry here in John 3, and he's already created quite a stir. Um, If you read back in chapters 1 and 2 of John, you find out that he's been baptized in the Jordan River. He's called several of his disciples to follow him, and he's performed his first miracle, the turning of water into wine at that wedding in Galilee. And then in chapter 2, he arrives in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, you know that he clears the temple of the money changers. He's going to do that again in another three years. He starts healing people. He performs a lot of miraculous signs. I suspect that he gives sight to the blind. He helps deaf people hear. He he feeds the hungry. There's no telling what he did, but he did a lot of miraculous signs, and he began to get a lot of notice He drew crowds. People knew that Jesus was here. He was some teacher sent from God, perhaps. And that's when we come to John chapter 3, and we meet this fellow by the name of Nicodemus. Now, who was Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a teacher of the Jews. Verse 10, in fact, that we didn't read, calls him the teacher of the Jews. So Nicodemus is one of the leading theologians of the day, if not the leading theologian of the Jewish people of the day. He has the best of credentials. In verse 1, we find out that he's a Pharisee. The Pharisees Pharisees were a sect of Jewish religious people known for their rigorous adherence to the law and to the customs that had grown up around the law. He's a member also of the Jewish ruling council. Another word for that is the Sanhedrin. This was a 70-member group that was very similar to what you and I today would call the U.S. Senate. So Nicodemus is a powerful man. He's a widely known and highly respected man. Not only that, he's a good man. Nicodemus is a moral man. Let's not undercut his character at all. He is liked and he's looked up to by everybody. He's zealous for religious purity and he lives what he teaches. 
You know, I have no doubt about that. I think that Nicodemus lives what he teaches. His walk matches his talk. You couldn't dig up any dirt on Nicodemus. I'm convinced. So he comes to Jesus by night in verse 2. And he says to him, Rabbi, which is a term of respect, means teacher. Rabbi, we know, we Pharisees, we religious experts, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. Nobody could do the things you're doing if God were not with him. Now, what lay behind those words, do you think? It's hard to tell, isn't it? What, how can you read between the lines of Nicodemus's words there? In my opinion, it sounds very condescending. He also sounds like he is representing the religious establishment of Jesus' day. And he's saying something like this. Young man, we've been watching you. We've heard the news about you. You're really something. We know that you are doing some really good things here among us. And I think we've got something to give one another. We can help you. You can help us. Let's work together. Let's pool our resources It's kind of a game I think people play sometimes when they're jockeying for power. You know, they use titles. They use flattery. But Jesus is not impressed. He's not impressed at all. He pierces through the jargon and he looks straight down into Nicodemus's heart. And he says in verse 3, Nicodemus, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see The kingdom of God. Stunning words. Stunning words. Nicodemus has never heard anything like that. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he or she is born again. Now think of how ironic this is that Jesus would say that to a man like Nicodemus. Most people in our community here in East Orlando, most people I think would say that if there's anybody who did not need to be told that he needed to be born again, it would have been Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a man who was very upstanding. You know, he it's the poor who need to be told to be born again. It's the uh, disenfranchised. It's the drug dealers. It's the misguided people. But not Nicodemus, surely. Not him. But Jesus thinks otherwise. Jesus thinks otherwise. He sees Nicodemus' true spiritual condition. You know, he knows that Nicodemus knows a lot of theology, but he also knows that Nicodemus is not in the kingdom of God. In fact, Nicodemus is very far away from the kingdom of God. In fact, Nicodemus is moving in the opposite direction away from the kingdom of God. And Jesus knows that the more Nicodemus maintains his current view of things, the more he is only moving further and further away from the kingdom of God. That's interesting, isn't it? I said before that Nicodemus is a very moral person. Nothing you could say about him that would be bad about about his record. But what we learn there is that morality without Christ, being good without believing the gospel, actually takes you away from God. And that's so counterintuitive in our culture. Most people think the more good you are, the closer you're getting to God. But Jesus is going to say today that if that being good is apart from believing the gospel, morality without Christ actually takes you in the opposite direction away from God. Why is that? It's because 
if you rely on your morality, if you rely on being good and upstanding and so on, you don't think you need a savior. Your savior is yourself. And you're relying upon yourself instead of upon God. And that's why you're not in the kingdom of God. But anyway, back to verse 3. Notice the word can, C-A-N, in verse 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, no one can. He doesn't say no one may or no one might. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And he says in verse 5, something similar, just a slight change of wording. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Jesus is saying, unless A happens, B cannot happen. It's impossible. And he makes it even more plain in verse 7, where Jesus says, you must be born again. Regeneration, in other words, is a necessary condition for one to be in the family of God. Now, why is that? Why is regeneration, the new heart, the rebirth, why is it a necessary condition to be in God's family? It's because of the radical and pervasive presence of sin in the human heart. That's why. See, here's this very good man. I want to restate that. You cannot underestimate the goodness of Nicodemus. Here's this very good man. He's got a record as clean as as a person might have. But the trouble is he's still in his unregenerate, his natural, his sinful state before the holy eyes of Jesus Christ. Nicodemus is a sinner by birth as well as by choice. He's good, yes. But good compared to what? Good compared to what? Uh, Think, for example, of someone who you know is very tall. I think of uh, Gary Fredericks. When I'm in Gary Fredericks' presence, I'm looking up that way. Gary is very tall. But compared to a giant redwood tree... Gary is very tiny. What are you going to compare good to? You're going to compare good to the absolute perfection and righteousness and holiness of God. And in comparison to that, no one is good. Far from it. Far from it. Nicodemus is not good. He is a sinner. And so are you. And so am I. The moment we are conceived in our mother's wombs, the Bible tells us, we become guilty of original sin, the sin that we've inherited from Adam way down in history. Romans 3 verse 10 says there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. We say, oh, I seek God. But compared to the giant redwood tree of God's perfection, no one seeks God. No one's good. And later on in Romans 3, you know that famous verse, all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I took my grandchildren a few weeks ago to see the movie Wreck-It Ralph. Anybody seen that animated movie? Good movie. Christians ought to see Wreck-It Ralph. There's a lot of theology in that movie. It's very, very good. Wreck-It Ralph is, I'll tell you about it, He is the bad guy in a video game that's called Fix-It Felix Jr. He's the bad guy. He's the villain. 
And he dreams of someday being a hero, someday winning a medal, and someday having people to like him and admire him and so on like that. But Ralph doesn't know how to change. In fact, the point is, he can't change. He needs Fix-It Felix to come and clean up his messes. He cannot change. Fix-It Felix Jr. is the good guy who has to come and fix up everything, right? Well, the funniest part of this movie is when Wreck-It Ralph goes to belong to a support group for video game villains. This is the brightest part of the film. And he's sitting in this support group surrounded by other well-known and some invented uh, uh, villains of these various video games. Bowser from Super Mario Brothers is there. Dr. Eggman from Sonic the Hedgehog. Clyde from Pac-Man. They're all sitting in this circle, right? And Ralph speaks up and he says, I don't want to be the bad guy anymore. And one of the villains in the group says to him, you can't mess with the program, Ralph. And then Clyde from Pac-Man says, Ralph, we can't change who we are. Somebody who wrote that movie had read the Bible. See, that's the Christian view of the human being. That's the human predicament. We can't change who we are. We need someone from the outside, someone supernaturally to come and change us from the inside out. And that's what we're talking about today. That's the new heart. That's regeneration. We're all born into this world as bad guys. Nobody has to teach us to wreck things. It somehow seems to come naturally to us. We might learn to be nice. Uh, You know, I'm from the South. We learn lots of ways to be nice people. You might learn your manners. You know how to be polite. You know how to work hard and be a good student. You know how to clean up the outside of the cup, Jesus said in another place. And some of us might actually be respectable human beings, just like Nicodemus was. Let's not misunderstand. That is good. That is possible. But none of us can come anywhere close to God's demand, to God's standard. And truth be told, even a lot of the Good things that we do are motivated by what? Often motivated by a desire to get ahead, a desire to put someone else down, a desire to look good before the world, to solve our insecurities, whatever, but not to please Almighty God. Ephesians 2 puts it starkly. Paul in Ephesians 2 says we're dead in sin. Now, look, you might fight against that teaching, but I'm telling you that until you agree with it and accept it, you're not free. Freedom only begins when you begin to say, yeah, I was born dead in sin. I need somebody like Fix-It Felix to come help me out. I cannot change myself. This is why, friends, this is why in order to be a Christian, regeneration has to happen first. Before anything else can happen, you can't even believe in Jesus until you have a new heart, until you've been born again. A lot of people say, believe in Jesus and then you'll be born again. The Bible says it's the other way around. You've got to be born again before you can believe. You can't even believe in Jesus. You can't understand the gospel. You cannot repent. You cannot follow Jesus until the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart and gives you a new Well, we're going to look at it in a moment. I don't want to give it away. But until the Holy Spirit gives you a new beginning, a new center, and that's called the new birth. 
The new birth is necessary. You need this total makeover. There are no exceptions. Regeneration is the prereq for eternal life. Got it? All right. So that's the necessity of the new birth. Let's talk now about the nature of it. What is it exactly? How does it happen exactly? The nature of the new birth. Well, let me first define regeneration for you, and I'll split this definition up into three pieces. Piece number one, regeneration or the new birth or the rebirth, however you wish to call it, is a sovereign act of God the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is a sovereign act of God the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus says in verse 3. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And the word again could just as likely be translated from above. See, that's why I say it's a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit of God from above doing something that you cannot do to yourself. And verse 5 puts it this way. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Now, what does he mean by that? Water and spirit. Let's dwell dwell on that a little bit. Well, first, I would remind you that Jesus knows that Nicodemus is is an expert in the Old Testament law. Jesus knows Nicodemus knows the Old Testament better than all of us put together because he's a Pharisee. And so Jesus takes Nicodemus to the Old Testament. And Nicodemus, when he hears that phrase, water and the spirit, I have no doubt thinks of Ezekiel 36. I'll give you a brief little portion of it. Look at Ezekiel 36 on the screen. Where Jesus, I mean, where uh, God says through the prophet Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Notice the pronouns. I, I, I. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will remove your heart of stone. I will put my spirit in you. You see, this is a monergistic work of God, the Holy Spirit, from above coming into our heart, giving us the new spirit, the new heart, the new inclination, cleansing us and so on and so forth. And it must be that way. It must be that way because, like I said before, we are what? Dead in sin. We are helpless. We're like Wreck-It Ralph. And do you see the connection in Ezekiel between water and spirit? Water speaks of our need of cleansing. Cleansing away the impurity of our sin. And the spirit speaks of our need of new life. Of renewal. Of resurrection. So when the Holy Spirit regenerates a person... He does both things. He cleanses him or her from his or her sin through the application of the blood of Christ. And he raises you to new life in Christ. Water and spirit. You see this same idea taught in the book of Titus. 
Titus chapter 3, look at this passage. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. How? By the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom He poured on us. There it is again, the water and the Spirit. They happen at the same time, but you can see two different kinds of needs that we have. The need of the washing away of our impurity and the need of rising again to new life. Here's the point. The Holy Spirit is the sovereign agent of this regeneration, this new birth. You and I are passive. He is active. Jesus compares the Holy Spirit to wind, like I was telling the children earlier. In verse 8, he says that the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Do you see the sovereign activity of the Spirit of God there? Comparing it to the wind? Regeneration happens outside your control. Uh, Remember the day of your birth? You all remember that, right? Did you have anything to do with choosing the time or place of your first birth? Of course not. Did you there sitting in the nice safe womb of your mother decide, I'm going to be born today? No, you had nothing at all to do with it. It's the same with the new birth. You can't make yourself be born the second time either. You can't push a button and say an automatic prayer or take a class and suddenly become a regenerate person. It does, not, it does not work that way. You can't make the Holy Spirit uh, do what you want Him to do any more that you, than you can uh, turn a hurricane or stop the wind or make a tornado go away on your own power. He blows wherever He pleases. Second piece of our definition. Regeneration is not only a sovereign act of God the Holy Spirit, but it is an instantaneous act of God the Holy Spirit. It happens like that. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul says this. Look at this passage. He says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you've been saved. Now, notice that phrase that I've underlined, made us alive. In the Greek language, there is a verb tense called aorist, A-O-R-I-S-T. It refers to action in the past that happened just like that. In fact, I had a seminary Greek professor who always tried to teach us the various languages using hand motions, I mean the various tenses using hand motions. And he taught us the aorist tense by saying it happens... Just like that. It happened in the past just like that. And that's what Paul is saying. You were made alive by the activity of the Spirit in a moment of time. Being born again is sort of like Jesus being raised from the dead. One moment he's lying there, a lifeless body in the grave, and suddenly in the next moment, air enters his lungs, he's breathing, he's thinking, he's talking, he's out of the tomb, and he's alive just like that. Now, be careful. You may not be conscious of the moment of your regeneration. Probably aren't. That's part of the mystery of regeneration. It can happen to a little child. A little child can be born again. When did John the Baptist get born again? He was regenerated in the womb of his mother Elizabeth. So the sovereign instantaneous activity of the Holy Spirit 
Giving people the new birth is something that happens apart from your control and happens just like that, and it can happen anytime the Holy Spirit wishes to give it. In fact, that story about John the Baptist says that you and I as parents ought to be praying for our little children, that God will regenerate them as early in life as possible. And he can do that. He can do that. Let's move on to the third piece of our definition. The new birth is not only the sovereign, instantaneous act of the Holy Spirit, but now let's get more specific. What is it exactly? It's a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit in which he breathes life into your heart and puts a new disposition or a new operating principle into your life so that you begin to be transformed from the inside out. Let me say that again. It's an act of God the Spirit in which He breathes life into your dead heart and puts a new disposition or a new operating principle into your life so that you begin to experience transformation from the inside out. Look at verse 6 of our text where Jesus says, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. See, Jesus is saying that regeneration results in a new person. Please get that. It results in a new person, not just a better person, not just a nice person, not just a reformed person, but a new person, somebody with new loves, new values, new desires, a new desire to love and follow and serve God, new priorities. It's not a reformation. It's a resurrection. Literally, it's a resurrection of a new person. Different from who you used to be. Still within the same body, obviously. Still many similarities. But now your whole value system has been made over again by the Holy Spirit of God. You remember last week we talked about Genesis 1. At the dawn of creation, when the Holy Spirit hovered or brooded over the waters and breathed life so that material life came into creation. That was the Holy Spirit's role in creating the world, the universe. Well, in the same manner, he broods or hovers or uh, uh, warms would be another way to look at it. He warms the human heart and he brings that sinful heart to life so that you can understand the gospel, so that you can believe in Jesus and repent of your sin and follow after Christ. So the new birth is a radical change of your nature. It brings about a decisive, irreversible break with the past and a new desire to follow after Christ as your Lord. Resistance to God becomes non-resistance. He breaks through those defenses. The old stubborn clods of sin and self-centeredness that used to characterize your life are now broken up. And in their place is a new desire to know God and to please God and to get to know Jesus Christ better and serve Him more faithfully. Now, it's not the same as conversion. These are two different things. Conversion comes after regeneration. The new birth makes it possible for you to repent of sin and believe the gospel. That's what conversion is. But regeneration comes first. And let me make sure you know that this doesn't mean that you never sin again. 
This doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle and fall often. You will. But it does mean that sin will no longer satisfy you like you thought it used to. The things that used to bring you pleasure, now they break your heart. Those lusts, that desire, that pride for self-advancement that used to bring you some hope, it now breaks your heart whenever you see it rising up again. And what it means is that you will fight your sin and you will hate your sin and gradually, by God's grace, you will get more and more victory over sin. It means you'll have a new energy to say no to sin and yes to Jesus, but you'll struggle to the day you die. That's the process of sanctification. But it all begins with this implanting of a new principle, a new disposition. That's what regeneration is. So where are we now? We've seen what? Uh, We've seen the necessity of regeneration, why it's so important. We've seen the nature of it, what it is and how it operates. Now, the biggest question of the day is this. Have you been born again? Do you know the reality of the things that we're talking about today? Have you experienced these things for yourself? And you might say, well, I don't know that you can know. I'm telling you that you can know. You can know that you've been born again. That's the great glorious freedom of the gospel. You can know that you've been forgiven. You can know that you're in the family of God. Because there are marks of the new birth. Let's talk about those marks. There's not a more important matter for you to think about. And if some of you have come today without a relationship with Jesus, I've got to tell you, you need to think about what I'm about to say. The way to find out if you have been born again is to begin asking yourself some good questions. And I'm going to give you six. I'd like you to write them down, think about them, take them with you, and think about these six questions. The first one is a very basic one. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that He died on the cross to forgive you of your sin? And are you resting in that instead of in your self-salvation project. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God and are you resting in what He has done for you on the cross instead of on yourself? It says in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you done that? That's the first and most basic question that you've got to answer. The second one is, do you keep the commandments? Do you keep the commandments of God? That is to say, is it your goal every day to obey God and live according to his plan for your life instead of according to your own self-centered desires? It says in 1 John chapter 2, we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. So when you think about the Ten Commandments and the will of God about a number of different things, His commands about your sexuality, for example, His commands about your tongue, His commands about your material things, when you think about those commands, do you desire to obey them? And do you, generally speaking, obey them and grow more and more obedient? 
Number three, do you hate your sin? Because the fact of the matter is you're going to fail. We're going to blow those commandments often. So the third question is, when that happens, do you hate that sin? Does it bother you? Does it rip your heart out that you have disobeyed God and gone against His will? I don't mean you just feel guilty. I mean, do you have a growing awareness of the depth of your sin problem and a growing awareness of the demands of God's holiness and a sense that if Jesus doesn't take care of your sin, you're undone, you're lost. Does that describe you? It says in um, Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about his own struggle with his old sinful nature. And he comes to this place at the end of Romans 7 and he says, what a wretched man I am. I see that the good I do is not what I do and the bad that I don't want to do, I do. And it's this struggle between the flesh and the spirit and it rips his heart out. Wretched man that I am. Is that how your struggle is? Do you hate your sin? The fourth question, do you know that God is your father? Do you sense The fatherly pleasure of God. Now, this one's tough for some of us because not all of us have experienced a loving father in our lives. That's true of me. This one's tough. And it may be true of you too. But it says in Galatians 4, something very comforting. It says, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Do you... Do you sense that God, even though you might struggle, but you sense that he is saying, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased? That's a sign. That's a mark of regeneration. Number five, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Another way of putting that would be, do you love the church? Or do you find that you don't want to give in or forgive? You like that grudge you're holding on to? You're not struggling to love better? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. That's another mark of being born again. Loving people, loving the church. And finally, number six, is it your number one priority? I know you're going to fail. We know we struggle. But is it your number one priority in life to know and to love and to serve God? It says in Philippians 3, Paul's ambition was to know Christ, to know him better tomorrow than I did today. I want to know Christ, he says in Philippians 3, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Now, you may look at these six questions as I do, and you may say, these questions slay me. They slay me because I see how inconsistent I am. I see that though I want these things and though I value these things, I see how poor I am at some of them. I had a person one time who came to me in a very troubled state, and he said, I wonder, tears rolling down his cheeks, I wonder if I'm a Christian He said, I'm such a sinner. I fall so far short every single day. How in the world can I be a saved person? And I said to him, the very fact that you're worried about it like you are, the very fact that it bothers you that you're not living more like Christ calls you to live, 
says that you are born again. You are a believer because a non-Christian wouldn't care. A non-Christian wouldn't care. You know, I also think I might be talking not only to some people that are struggling with those six questions, but to some people that perhaps when you really think about what we've talked about today and you think about your own religious experience, your own past, you might say to yourself, you know, I need a new heart. I need a new heart. You may be uh, sort of like Nicodemus. You've tried to be good. You've tried to get better and it hasn't worked. You want to be good, but you know that you're not good enough. So what do you do? What do you do? You run to Jesus. That's what you do. You run to Jesus. In this passage, later in chapter 3, Jesus is going to take Nicodemus back in his mind to something that happened to the Old Testament people in Numbers 21. He's going to tell him, that the Old Testament people were traveling up through the wilderness in Numbers 21, and they were being bad. They were, being, they were slandering God's name. They were being rebellious, disobedient, selfish, and so, so on. And God just fed up, and, and he chastened his people. He sent poisonous snakes among them who bit some of them and killed them. And so people were dying. And what people did was they repented. They said, oh, my goodness, we, we're sinning against God. So they repented. They confessed their sin. They asked Moses to pray on their behalf. And God talked to Moses about it. And God said, I mean, uh, Moses talked to God about it. And God said, Moses, take a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And when the people look to the bronze snake, they will live. They will be healed. Now, you know the parallel here, right? Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, That's the kind of thing you need to do, Nicodemus. You need to run to Jesus. You need to run to me. Stop looking at me as merely a teacher and start looking at me as your Savior. And so in the rest of John chapter 3, Jesus says it's not about trying harder. It's not about being good and getting your act together. Those things are only going to take you farther away from Jesus. Instead, run to Jesus because God so loved the world That he gave Jesus that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Run to him. Tell him everything. Believe that he died on the cross for you. And if you'll do that, if you will do that, dear friend, you will find out that long before you loved him, he loved you. And long before you believed in him, he regenerated you by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Sometimes in these prayers, I like to pray a prayer on behalf of people who may not know Christ. Perhaps today in listening to this message, you have felt the Holy Spirit working in your life. You have perhaps felt your eyes open to something that you needed to see. And you desire a relationship with God. So I'm going to pray a prayer as we pray that I would like for you, if you know that you are not a Christian this morning or desire to be a Christian, you want to leave here with an assurance of being forgiven. I'll pray a prayer and you can pray it right after me. I'll leave you some time and you can just pray it silently in your mind. Almighty God, I've lived for myself, wanting my own way in rebellion against you. 
I'm sorry about that. I've come to see that you love me. That Jesus died for me. And that the Holy Spirit alone gives new birth. Please forgive my ugly rebellion. Please change me by this new birth so that I may love your ways and follow after you. Father, I thank you that just as Jesus told Nicodemus, you did not send your son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I pray that you'll send your spirit into every heart. Those who need to be born again, I pray that that will happen. And those who are born again, I pray that you'll send us out into the world to spread this good news that Jesus was lifted up on the cross so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being the sovereign giver of new life. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We at University Presbyterian Church thank you for listening to this message. Our mission is to help people know God, grow together, and serve others. To learn more about the church or how to have a vital relationship with God, visit our website at www.upc-orlando.com or call our offices at 407-384-3300.